So when I graduated college, just straight out of college, my first job was at the University of Colorado, and it was uh, for a therapeutic community, which was a, a drug addiction uh, counseling uh, community where they would have to come. We, we dealt specifically with people who had committed crimes while they were struggling with addiction, and they would come straight out of prison into our uh, houses that we kind of ran. One of the phrases that was often used and was often heard was, who's driving your bus? Or don't let that person drive your bus. But it was always about this idea of this bus being driven and who controls your bus. And the whole idea behind it was people could let other things and other people control them. And so the question would come when, when we, someone would come in and they'd be angry. Someone would say, but who's driving your bus? And the question was essentially, hey, is this other person or is this other thing controlling you? Or do you have control of yourself? And so I'll ask that question today. Who drives your bus? Or maybe it's what drives your bus? And every time I say that, I can't help but think of the, the book that my kids have, Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus. It's this crazy idea that this pigeon can drive a bus, right? And yet we kind of have the same thing going on, that it's this crazy idea that there are all these other things in our life that control us, and yet we let so many different things have control over us. So what drives your bus? Is it money? Is it pride? Is it influence? Do you want to be thought of as someone who's cool, a trendsetter? Maybe it's someone else. Maybe you have been what you think of as deprived of love your whole life, and so you just can't wait for the right person to come in and love you. And because someone gives you this good feeling you have about yourself, you let them drive your bus. Essentially, you let them have control over you. Maybe it's anger. Maybe anger is driving your bus. We only have a little bit of time here on this earth. You want to make the most of it. And you don't ever want to waste any of your time. And so you're constantly planning, constantly thinking of your next thing. And you're letting your time drive your bus. Or maybe you don't plan at all. And that begins to drive your bus. The, the current of the day controls you drives your bus. That is what we will talk about today as we continue our series. We're studying Ephesians. We're up to Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, and we've titled this series Better Together because we truly are better together. Ephesians starts off with the first three chapters where he lays out this grand theology of who God is and who we are because of who he is. We always have to start off with that because that is what's going to drive our behavior. And essentially, that actually does drive our bus. Our theology will drive our behavior. If you have bad theology, you'll have bad behavior. And you say, well, wait a minute. What about legalists? They really clean themselves up, don't they? I mean, they have the behavior down. Oh, they do while you're watching. But no legalist is perfect. And legalism always breeds living in the flesh. 
So even legalism doesn't provide great behavior. It is our theology that drives our bus. It is our theology that will drive our behavior. And so the first three chapters, he lays out this grand theology of who God is and who you are, that you are forgiven, you are adopted, you are a co-heir with Christ, you've been sealed by the Spirit, you are alive together with Him. And in fact, in Ephesians 2.10, he calls you uh, His workmanship, with the Greek word there is masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece, His original artwork. And then from, from the theology that he creates in the first, or that he explains in the first three chapters, then he gets into this applied side. The, the next three chapters in Ephesians will be the applied theology. The chapter four, sorry, chapter four begins with a contrast that you were once darkness, now you are light. You, you once were dead in your trespasses and sins, and this is what people that are dead in their trespasses and sins live like. And he keeps contrasting that with how we should be living. Because you are a new creation, because you are God's masterpiece, because you have been made as light, then live this way. Starting in verse 15, he's going to start to transition from contrasting into what's considered in the Roman Greco rule world house rules, the house codes. And he's going to give us this first section, 15 through 21, he doesn't quite get into those house codes, but he begins to explain the motivation for the house codes. How these house codes uh, should be motivated to live out. So he's going to get into that, and he's going to give us the theme for the house codes, which will end with verse 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this section begins with, look carefully then how you walk. And this is actually, he's dialing it back all the way to verse 8, which says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. So there again, we have that contrast. You were darkness. And notice once again, that he doesn't say you were in darkness, or you you are in the light. He says you were darkness. At the very, very core of your being, you were darkness. You, At the very core of your being, you were in rebellion against God. Now, you might have cleaned things up. You might have looked like your behavior was really good. But you still wanted to call the shots. You didn't want to submit to God as the ruler and creator of everything. You wanted to be the one that said, you know, God, you got some pretty good principles. I like what you did with some things. But I'm really going to be the one to call the shots in this area of my life. That is at the very core wanting to be God. At the very core, darkness, rebellion against God. But when you came to a place where you realized that you were rebellious against God and therefore deserving of death, but God, who loved you with such a great love, took the penalty for your rebellion, and all you have to do is put your faith and trust in his work on the cross, and when you came to that place where you where you realized all of this, He took you from being at the very core dark in rebellion and made you light. 
Now notice he doesn't say you walked in the light. He made you light. He essentially changed your being. He changed your identity. He changed the very core of who you are. And so then he says, because you are light, walk as children of light. I've changed your identity. Now act as if your identity has been changed. Notice it's not change your behavior and I'll change your identity. It's I have changed your identity so that you may actually live with changed behavior. So because we are light, we should walk as the light. So then look carefully. Examine how you are living. Examine your behavior. And then he describes two ways that we can walk carefully, or look carefully how we walk. The first one is not as unwise, but as wise. So we are to walk with wisdom. That's one of the ways that we can look carefully how we walk. So wisdom is skillful living. It was first described when someone as someone who was a craftsman. And they were really good at their job. So I think of it as this. We have a craftsman in this congregation who's really good. He's really skilled with cabinetry. I am not. Uh, I could go to Home Depot and I could buy some cabinets. And I could throw them up on a wall and they would be functional, kind of. You might not put anything that you really cherish in those cabinets. They could fall. But you could put some things in there. They might not look great. They might not be level. But they would function. They could survive a house for a while. But this person in our congregation who is a craftsman when it comes to cabinetry is skilled. He's taken time to study. He takes time to prep. You would definitely want him to design and build and install your cabinets over me 100% of the time. If you've got a choice between him and me, you will pick him, no doubt about it. But one of the things that I was talking about him yesterday, and one of the things that was really cool to, to learn about it, is that he, so he is like one of the top craftsmen for cabinetry and flagstaff in this whole region, right? And you would think a guy like that would say, I've made it. I don't have to study anymore. I don't have to learn anymore because I am the craftsman. I'm skilled. And then he mentions that he's still studying. He's still learning. That's what a craftsman does. They realize that there is always more to learn. You can always get better. And so they took that idea of craftsmanship with a certain skill set and they began to apply it to life, that you can have skilled living. So someone who is wise is someone who is skilled at living life. They understand that God made this world with basic moral principles, and they take time to study and to learn those principles, and then apply them through the situations in their life. And they realize that you've never actually made it. You've never achieved full wisdom status but that you constantly study, you constantly learn more. So Paul recognizes that there are traps all around us. There are evil people that would like nothing more than to see you fail. 
There is an enemy that wants nothing more than to see you fail and then to lead to uh, uh, heap loads of shame on you so that as a trophy of God's grace, you would be covered in mud and not willing to show off his grace. And beyond that, we can easily deceive ourselves. We can justify just about anything. So we have to be questioning our motives constantly. And we have to be pursuing wisdom constantly. We have to live life with wisdom. Jesus commands us to live as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Meaning we need to live with shrewdness. We need to constantly be studying the basic moral principles God has built this world with and figuring out how those apply. So in cabinetry, not every kitchen is going to look identical. There are custom kitchens. And you don't just walk in and put the same cabinets up in every single kitchen. But you have to use the principles you've learned and apply them every single time. So thus we need to live with wisdom, with skill, using discernment at all times. The second one is making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So we are to look carefully because we are light, because God has changed who we are at the very core, we should walk as if that. And so looking carefully means we need to examine how we are living our lives. And one of the first ways we can do that is with wisdom. The second one is making the best use of the time. So this, the actual term here for making the best use uh, is, uh, is an accounting term that means redeeming or buying back. So in order to walk or live out this new life, we need to buy back the time. We need to make good use of our time. This idea of buying back or redeeming the time gives us the idea that the time is already owned by something or someone. And Paul clarifies it with this, because the days are evil. So the time is kind of owned by evil. And it doesn't take us long to look around and see how evil people are. It doesn't take us long to look around and see a world that is full of corruption and people that are doing wickedness and people that are selfish that just want to please whatever fancies them. We often hear that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I just don't think this is true. If we look throughout history, we see that evil has always existed and will always exist until Jesus comes again. In particular, we can look at our culture today and we can see a decline in morality. And I'd actually say, or I might ask, there really is a decline, or maybe the decline is more out in the open. Either way, we want to know how we got there, and the answer is, when it comes to culture and morality, there is no neutral. We are either growing in God's grace, and therefore becoming more of what he has created us to be, 
or we are in rebellion against him. There is no neutral place. And for this reason, because the world does not know him, the world will continue in rebellion against him. And that rebellion will be expressed in several different ways. Sometimes that rebellion is expressed in legalism. I'm more holy, I'm more righteous than you, because I've cleaned up my act. Sometimes it's expressed in license. I can do whatever I want. Either way, it's still rebellion against God. So we need to make sure that we are living with wisdom all the time, redeeming the time, making the best use of our time. So these are two ways that we can walk carefully, that we can examine our behavior as people who are at the very core God has made light. And then he continues, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So that therefore, because the time is evil, and because we have been called to live for something more, because we have been called to live a life worthy of the grace he has lavished upon us, because we are his trophies of his grace, because we are he has made us at the very core light, and the days are evil, and we've been called to live as the light, do not be foolish. The term foolish means mindless, stupid, ignorant, devoid of understanding, or not employing one's understanding in practical matters. This is in contrast to that wise or skillful living. If the wise live with skill, the foolish would run into the kitchen without ever giving any thought to the cabinets. They wouldn't even think about where to hang them, what type of color schemes, what the kitchen would actually even be used for. And they would haphazardly throw cabinets into the air, hoping that it would be a functional kitchen. The same is true for life. When you let the currents of life push you along, you give no thought to what God has called you to do, it leaves you in a terrible mess that only wisdom can get you out of. So going back to this idea of craftsmanship, a while back we lived in Cheyenne, the house that we lived in in Cheyenne had a garage, but the previous owners wanted wanted it to be a, a room. So they put a wall in where the garage door was. But then they didn't do anything else. So it was a garage with a big wall. Well, Cheyenne winters are cold and windy and kind of brutal. So Jen wanted to park her car in a garage. So she asked me to take out the wall and install a garage door. No big deal, right? I've installed doors before. How much worse could a garage door be? So I went to Home Depot, and I bought a garage door. I even recruited a friend who was an engineer, and I'm like, this guy is an engineer. He knows his stuff, right? I recruited him to help me. So we got all the, all the pieces, all the parts together, and we started building up this garage door, and it looked good. It looked functional. It looked like it would work. And it did until I hit the open button. And right at the top, one of the wheels fell off. No big deal. Didn't damage it. It's easy to fix. I could just do make a couple of adjustments. 
So I made a couple of adjustments and I tried it again. Only this time, two wheels fell off. All right, and at that point, my engineer friend said, oh, I gotta go. Sweet, you're supposed to be the smart one. So he leaves me and I just keep coming back to like making just a couple adjustments here and there, hoping that would fix it, but it would fix it on this side and then this side would fall off. So I'd come over here and I'd fix this side and maybe the front side over here would fall off. And it would just keep, a couple wheels at a time just keep falling off and I'm starting to get more and more frustrated and my wife is with me and she's starting to realize that this is no longer funny, but actually we might run into some issues here. So she, with wisdom, decided that it would be best to call someone who knows what he's doing. So we ended up paying someone to come out and who was a craftsman who, who knew garage doors. That's all that he did with his life was install garage doors. And he walks in and within the first couple minutes, he knows exactly what my problem is. And he knows exactly how to fix it. And what was really interesting to me was I was really close to getting it. Really close. But it was these small adjustments that I didn't know how to do. And I could have spent the next week making adjustments and never getting it right. I needed someone who was skillful to come in and show me how to do it. When we live with foolishness, we often end up making a mess of things. And if we don't turn towards wisdom, we're like that I... We're like what I was doing in that garage door, running back and forth, trying to correct things. And the more you would correct it, the more it would actually kind of mess up. And what you really need is someone who is full of wisdom, who has skill in living, to come alongside you and show you, look, this is where you've got it wrong. This is how to make the slight adjustment so you can get it right. So we are called to no longer live in foolish. And then you contrast that, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So notice that the foolishness is contrasted with understanding the will of the Lord. So what is wisdom? It's skillful living. And how do we live skillfully? Well, we understand what the will of the Lord is. So this is, a, it comes back down to this idea that God created the world with moral principles and he has revealed those moral principles to us. I like to, a good way to think about this is that the Bible gives us precepts, principles, and allows for preferences. Let's go, I've got some slides this week. That's crazy, right? So let's go to the first slide. So the precept, precept is a rule. It is authoritative for all, and it's applied universally. I think a great example of this is murder. So God has given us a precept, a rule. And we will all apply it. It's universal. It applies to every single person on this earth. Everyone should follow this rule. And we follow this rule the exact same way. Don't kill. If I kill you, no matter what the circumstance was and no matter uh, what my uh, justification is, we've got murder, right? Let's say we're out on the street and I, and I decide I'm going to kill you. That's murder. I decide I'm justified because I don't like the way you looked at me. Still murder, right? So it's, it's authoritative for all. It's applied universally. And we can find a bunch of those precepts as we walk through Scripture. The next one is principle. 
a principle is authoritative for all, but applied individually. And it's a guide for our behavior. So whereas a precept gives you the do's and the don'ts, the principle gives you a guide. This is how you should behave. But then you can take that guide, you can take that principle, and then you apply it to every situation in life. I think a good example of this is stewardship. We could probably find a lot of other examples, right? But stewardship is a great example. God has given us a principle to be a good steward. But that's going to look different from person to person and from resource to resource. So, but we're supposed to be good stewards of all that he has given us, whether it's our time, whether it's our treasure, whether it's our talent, whether it's being a good steward of this entire earth that we live on, we are called to be good stewards. So some people take this and they say, okay, so being a good steward, I, I have God has blessed me with finances, with, with uh, resources, and I'm going to give 10% of my resources to the church. Well, that's an old, that's, you know, typically taken after tithing. That's an Old Testament uh, rule. But that's not a New Testament rule. We don't ha actually have to give 10% of our resources to the church. Some people like to do that because it just gives them a good guideline. But someone else might say, well, you know, God's blessed me even more, and I don't need anything, so I'm actually going to bump it up to 20 and other people are like, man, I'm really struggling to live at all right now. I can barely pay my rent. I'm eating nothing but beans and cheese. Maybe some stolen Taco Bell packets. I'm only going to give like 3%. God gives a lot of grace on that. And he gives us, with a renewed mind, the ability to take the principle of being a good steward of what he has given you and apply it individually. Some people would even say, I'm going to give some money to the church and I'm going to give some money to the Sunshine Rescue Mission. And others will say, I'm going to give some money to the Crisis Pregnancy Center. But there's no rule that says, I have to give to the Crisis Pregnancy Center. I have to give the Sunshine Rescue Mission, I have to give to certain missionaries. God has entrusted you with the principle and the ability to steward that well according to how you believe he has called you to, to use that money. So that's the principle. And then he's also given us the ability to have preferences. A preference is authoritative for none and applied individually. So uh, I think examples of this are like taste or music. Uh, one of my sons, he really likes the flavor grape. I think it's disgusting. Uh, when we get popsicles, I will not touch a grape. In fact, I would rather not have a popsicle than have a grape popsicle. He feels the same way about red popsicles. I don't even know what flavor red is. It's just red, right? But it's delicious. So, I, so sometimes what happens is people have these preferences and they pop them up to like principles or, or even precepts. And they think for some reason, if you like what I like, that makes you and me more holy than that person that likes grape. The person that likes grape is like less holy or something. And we run into this all the time. And sometimes it's used as a joke, but sometimes it's real. So let's talk about sports. Do you like the Denver Broncos or the Oakland Raiders? 
And which one makes you more holy? If you live in Denver, you better not like the Oakland Raiders. Oh, wait, no. It's Las Vegas Raiders now. Sorry. Now you're okay because it's Las Vegas, right? But do you see how people do this all the time? I have a good friend that really is into fat burger. And he hates In-N-Out. And if you like In-N-Out, you're actually kind of thought of as less than because you don't know the true glories of fat burger. But how many other people do I know that like fat burger and think, man, you might be less than if you don't like fat burger, or if you don't like In-N-Out. I don't know. Call me crazy. It's not that good of a burger. Anyways, but we see this all the time, right? So, so, uh, but it doesn't make you holy or less holy. It doesn't make you better or less better. And in fact, what's really cool about different preferences is we can team up together and it makes us better together. So when I think about my son who really likes grape, I don't want to buy popsicles with someone that likes red because they're going to eat all my popsicles. I'm going to buy them with my son that likes grape because he can have all of the disgusting ones and I'll eat all of his disgusting ones and we're better together that way, right? So we should actually be encouraging each other in our preferences instead of bagging on each other for our preferences. Because God, our preferences reveal that God has made us unique. He has made us individuals and it's totally cool to be a unique individual and to encourage others in, in to be unique and individuals. But this is the will of God, that the precepts and the principles, the preferences are not the will of God. So we take the rules that he's given us and we apply them to our lives. We take the principles that he's given to us and we apply them to our lives. We have total freedom in our preferences. And then he goes on, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So this correlates back to redeeming the time, to making the most of the time. To live with drunkenness is to let the current of today's culture control you. Typically, people get drunk to numb the pain and the hopelessness that they are feeling. So there's a command, do not be controlled by drunkenness. This term debauchery means senseless, reckless. It's behavior which shows a lack of concern for consequences. So he is literally telling us not to get drunk because it reveals a life being lived with recklessness. But it is also metaphorically commanding us to live a life of purpose, not a life of purposelessness. So he's telling us don't be reckless with your life. And this is important because often when we read this, do not be drunk with wine, we only apply it to being drunk with wine, which don't get me wrong, that's a command that he's making. He's saying, don't go and get drunk. But then we leave the bigger picture, the bigger principle behind. And the bigger principle, the bigger picture, is to not live a life that is reckless, but to live a life that is purpose. And he go ahead and he contrast that but uh, with, but be filled with the Spirit. So living a life that is reckless is contrasted with living a life that is filled with the Spirit. 
So we have to ask, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? There are several different places in the New Testament that describes interaction with the, with the Spirit. So we see here, Romans 8, 9, upon belief, the Spirit indwells you. So we have the indwelling Spirit, which means God is living in you. This happens upon belief, upon putting your faith and trust in Christ, the Spirit indwells you. If you have accepted Christ, this is what happens. There is no more or less of this dwelling indwelling. You can't, like, get more of the Spirit indwelling in you. It's just a done deal. The next one we find in Ephesians 1.13 is the sealing of the Spirit. Once again, this happens upon belief. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, the Spirit seals you. And this is a reference to the fact that the indwelling Spirit is keeping you until you are fully reunited with Christ. So you've been sealed by the Spirit. And then we find in 1 Corinthians 12.13 that there is the baptism by the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit means that upon belief, the Spirit immerses you into the body of Christ, the church. You are now a member of the universal church and have your identity in Christ. And then we find this, Ephesians 5.18, a command to be filled with the Spirit. Notice in this list of interactions, this is the only one that is a command. The rest just happen to you upon belief. The rest is what God does to you when you put your faith and trust in Christ. But this one is a command that we are to do. We are to be filled with the Spirit. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, sometimes we say someone was filled with anger. What do we mean by that? It means that they were being controlled by anger. Or sometimes we say someone was filled with fear. What do we mean? That fear is controlling them. And we look at the, the contrast. The first part is to be controlled by alcohol, to be controlled by drunkenness. So then to be filled with the Spirit means to let the Spirit control you. Some people get this idea that it's this like special uh, anointed feeling that you get by the Holy Spirit and like you can drum up the, the Spirit doing more in your body. But that's not what this is a reference to. This is specifically saying let yourself be controlled by the Spirit of God. Well, then that would beg the question, how do I let the Spirit control me? And I think Paul does a great job of outlining how we let the Spirit control us all the way back in chapter 3. At the very end of chapter 3, he gives a prayer that he prays for the church, and he outlines how we can controlled by the Spirit. First, we submit to the Scripture. Then, we let Christ dwell in our hearts. And he uses this term that means, like, you let Christ move in. Too often, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we, like, rent out space to Him. And what happens when you're, when you're renting out a space? You're not allowed to change a thing, right? You can't paint without the landlord's permission. And that's what we kind of do with Christ. We're like, Christ, I want you to come and live in me. I want you to like to, to change the very core of my nature, but I don't actually want you to call the shots in my life. To let Christ dwell in your heart means you let him call the shots. When you move into a house, 
you can remodel it however you want. If you want to hire me to do your cabinets and I'll do a shoddy job and just throw something up there, you can do that. Or you can hire an expert. You can do whatever you want in your own house. And that's the analogy that he's getting at here, is let Christ dwell in your heart. Let him move in and call the shots. So first you have to submit to Scripture. Then you let Christ dwell in your heart. You let him call the shots. And as he rearranges things in your heart, as he tears walls down, as he throws up some new paint color, we begin to realize his uh, his love for us. We begin to grow in our knowledge of his love for us. And as we grow in this knowledge, we begin to mature into who he has created us to be. And that is being filled with the Spirit. We begin to let the Spirit control you. Now, this filling and maturing does not mean that we have to quit our day job and go into full-time ministry. Just because someone is in ministry does not make them filled with the Spirit. I would say that this is more of an integration of God into all the things of our life. It is recognizing that He is a part of every single aspect of our life. It's leaving behind this idea that God interacts with us when we're in church and during our five-minute devotional in the morning and you know our little prayer at night. but integrating into every aspect. It's leaving behind the idea that, you know, I clean myself up when I'm around my church friends, when I'm around my other friends, I act just like them. Saying that God is fully involved in every aspect of my life. I kind of think of it as being uh, diagnosed as a diabetic. And what I mean by that is when you are diagnosed as a diabetic, you have to integrate that into all aspects of your life. You don't get to pick and choose. Years ago, as a youth pastor, I knew a kid that was tired of being a diabetic. For his whole life, he had to watch what he ate. He had to measure his blood sugar. His entire life, he had to live differently than everyone else, all the other kids who just didn't have to care. And he was sick of it. And one day he decided, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to live like everyone else. And he went to a party, and he didn't check his blood sugar, and he ate, and he drank, and he was really merry until he collapsed. And his friends didn't know what to do. They called 911. He came close to death that night. Being filled with the Spirit is saying, God is integrated in every aspect of my life. And there's no part of my life that I can ignore. I can't pick and choose it. So the next three verses are outflows of what letting the Spirit control you look like. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. 
So there's three parts to this one, but this is an outflow of what the Spirit controlling us looks like. So when we are controlled by the Spirit, we will address one another in Psalms. The Psalms, this is a direct reference to the book of Psalms, and even we could go greater with the the, uh, Bible as a whole, letting us instruct and sing to one another with the words uh, in Scripture. And then hymns is a reference to a way that the Greco-Roman world would eulogize a hero. So this is not what we think of when we think of hymns. When we think of hymns, we think of like these traditional songs. But when Paul is writing about hymns, he's thinking about a eulogy for a hero. So according to this definition, there are modern worship songs, contemporary music, we might say, that are actually hymns. And there are traditional hymns that we think of that actually aren't a hymn according to this or according to this definition. In fact, there were some Romans that were even offended that Christians would sing hymns to Jesus because they didn't consider him a hero. So we're supposed to, uh, so as we sing, this term addressing one another is actually speaking, and it, it refers to this idea that we would instruct each other and we would sing. Part of the way that we can instruct each other is singing, but it doesn't leave behind this idea that we would instruct each other through hymns about how great God is, how great Jesus is, psalms, and then spiritual songs as well. And this is kind of a generic term referencing any type of praise music that was not rooted in a psalm or was not considered a hymn. And the point is that I think he's making is that worship is not about us, but about God. People who grumble about the worship style are not filled with the Spirit. When you are grumbling about the worship style, you are not letting the Spirit control you. When our hearts are set on Christ, not about how worship makes us feel, but set on how us together as a church, lifting our voices together to glorify God, how that helps maintain the unity of the body of Christ, then we glorify God. We are being controlled by the Spirit. So the attitude of letting go of our style preferences and focusing in on glorifying Christ together flows from being controlled by the Spirit. When we are not controlled by the Spirit, then we come to just get the right feeling. Worship turns into a concert, and we become people that are easily emotionally manipulated because we care more about emotion and getting the right feeling than we do about actually glorifying Christ together. So we should put aside our preferences so that we can live out this principle of glorifying God, worshiping Him through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So that's the first outflow of being controlled by the Spirit. The second outflow is found in verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So thanksgiving is a theme that we see throughout the letter. Earlier on, when Paul is contrasting the dark with the light, the light gives thanks. Here he returns to the theme. I don't think that he means to be thankful for literally everything. That would mean being thankful for evil or even rebellion against God. So we're not commanded to be thankful for evil but to be thankful for all things that align with God. So that's part of it, is giving thanks always and everything to God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in the name of our Lord, meaning 
everything that lines up with Christ, we give thanks to God at all times for. And so an outflow of being filled with the Spirit is to be thankful for everything that lines up with Christ. In order to do this, I think we really have to trust God. Because there are times in our life where it doesn't seem like we really should be that thankful. There are times in our lives where we're going through trials, and the only way to really be thankful is to trust God. So on Thursdays, we host a small group. On this small group, we study the Bible together, and we pray for one another. And there are times when people, for one reason or another, can't make it. Now, you can look around our congregation, and on a Thursday night, if there's only two, maybe three or four couples there, I can easily get discouraged if I'm focusing on what's not happening. But when I focus and I think about what God is doing during that time, not just with the people that are there in the living room together, but when I think about even the people that come to the small group of, for some reason, can't make it that night, but what God is doing in their life at that moment might even be more important than what I am doing in that room, I can trust God and be thankful even for the people that didn't show up. Because I know that God is doing something incredible in everybody's life who is being controlled by the Spirit. But I have to trust Him with other people's lives. But I think that's one of the keys, is when I focus in on who's not there, when I focus in on what's not happening, I'm unthankful. When I focus in on what God is actually doing, I become more thankful and more grateful. So the last outflow of the Spirit is submission to one another. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In our culture, the idea of submission is kind of a bad thing. People who lose submit, right? People who are inferior submit. So we don't like the word submit. Beyond that, this this text raises a question. How can two people submit together? And I think the solution comes from how uh, the word submission is defined. In the Greek, it's hupotasso. This word hupotasso originally was a military term, meaning to put underneath the command of. And that helped organize things. It revealed rank. It created order. Could you imagine a military where no one submitted to anyone else? Who would you even obey? What would be the purpose? But as the term crept into civilian culture, it meant to cooperate or voluntarily adopting an attitude of yielding. And I would say it could be summed up in esteeming others as higher than yourself. Esteeming others as higher than yourself. So how do we hupotasso? We We cooperate with one another. We esteem others more than ourselves. Instead of dying on my preference hill, I give in to your preference. So he's going to 
use this to actually start getting into the house codes. And, and this idea of submitting to one another will be the basis for the rest of the outplay in chapter 5 and most of chapter 6. And if we all did this, if we all were submitting to one another, then as a church, we'd be constantly propping each other up in Christ. Instead of arguing over worship styles, we would be trying to find a way that would encourage the others. Instead of coming to church with a consumeristic mindset, asking, what can the church offer me today? We would come with the mindset of, how do I get to be used by God today? How can I serve God by propping up other people and encouraging other people today? And then he gives us the motivation for living in submission to one another. And that is reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. As we remember what he has done to reconcile us to him. As we remember what he has done to create unity within the church. We were reminded that we are that our lives are no longer about living for ourselves, but living for the God that loved me so much that he died in my place. You at the very core are now light. God has changed you from being darkness in rebellion against him to at the very core light. His masterpiece his work of art, his original. And we are called to live as people of light. We do this by walking with wisdom, by redeeming the time, by letting the Spirit of God control us. And as we do this, the outflows of that spiritual control is esteeming other people as better than ourselves. Dear Lord, we thank you so much that you have changed our hearts. That you have taken these people that are rebellious and dead in our sins and made us alive together with you. We pray that as we study your word, as we let you dwell in our hearts, that we would begin to integrate you into every aspect of our lives, that we would be controlled by your Spirit, and that this would be a natural thing that occurs because we are like now. We don't have to continually learn it. We don't have to try harder. But as we grow more and more in who you have created for us to be, it becomes more and more natural. In your name we pray.